Welcome to The Work, a new podcast brought to you by TheatreWorks Silicon Valley. Join us as we explore the world of theater, connecting with artists in a national conversation around the most pressing issues within the industry. I am Alejandra Cisneros. And I'm Steve Muterspaugh. And this is The, the Work. Work. On today's episode, our guest is Jonathan Castanian, stage manager, producer, and co-founder of The Song Collective whose mission is to reclaim the Vietnamese-American narrative by creating opportunities for emerging artists of color. Hi, I'm Jonathan Castanian. I am a stage manager and producer in New York City and co-founder of The Song Collective. Why do you say producer like a question mark? (laughs) (laughs) It It still feels weird to say. You are a producer. It's that imposter syndrome. I know. No, no, no. That's strong. That's really strong. I love that. We're going to start off our conversation with the imposter syndrome. <laughs> oh, therapy. <laughs> um, and Jonathan, how long have you been doing um, this, this stage management, producing, um, all that jazz? Mm, that's a good question. I've been stage managing since college um, and then professionally doing it pretty much soon after graduating. So what are we? Oh my God, we're 10 years in. It's about 10 years now (laughs) because we're in 2023, um, which is exciting. And then producing is a little newer for me. And I think I started doing that maybe in 2017. So wow, six years almost. Congratulations. Thanks. We may be Thanks. jumping uh, a lot of the the timeline a little, but what uh, what led you to the producing? Oh, I I got connected with this group in New York called Second Generation Productions or Two G, and they're this smaller Asian American theater group, and uh, my friend Leonanako Winkler was getting her reading produced through them. And she suggested me and they were kind of like, well, we need a stage manager, but also do you mind doing some line producing for it at the same time? And I was like, sure. So I started to get my feet wet that way. Um, And then I did a few more readings with them as like kind of the hybrid stage manager, line producer. And then I finally was just a line producer for a reading Um, and then uh, I started the song collective and kind of kept going with it through that. What's All right, well, my obvious collective? next yeah. question, right? What's the song name? <laughs> we were uh, both just, we couldn't get there fast <laughs> enough. <laughs> um, the song collective is a group that I co-founded with Carolina Doe and David Wynn. And we're all Vietnamese artists in New York city. And we had connected with each other through different means. Like I met David at Kata, which is a consortium for Asian American theaters and artists. And then I met Carolina. I met her on this (laughs) MFA grad students, Uncle Vanya that we did together (laughs) uh, for no money because the university didn't pay us, but I was just like brand new to the city and and was like hungry to do anything. So we met through that and then we all just kind of kept in touch because at the time for us, it was so rare to find another Vietnamese theater artist, especially in our age ranges. So we would hang out occasionally um, and just kind of keep in touch. 
And then we started the group in 2019, um, just kind of on a whim. It was really supposed to be like a one-off thing. It always um, is, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> they're like, they're two actors and I'm, I was stage managing and we were focused on that aspect of our careers. And David, I think, was just texting us in a group thread and the Syrian refugee crisis was going on and we're all children of refugees. So he was like, it feels like we should do something. Like maybe we can we can do like a reading of Viet Gone by Kui mm. Nguyen um, and have all the proceeds go towards um, an organization that is supporting the refugees. And Carolina and I were immediately uh, totally into that idea and said yes and we threw together this reading with no money we found a space for free through an organization called Chashama which partners with uh, landlords who have storefronts that are empty in the city and they provide what? it to <laughs> artists for free yeah it's, it's we need amazing. to drop a link of that <laughs> below <laughs> for the artists there yeah <laughs> Like we would not have been able to do it without that organization. And if you look around the city, you'll see like signs that say Chashama. Uh -huh. And inside might be like a gallery of art or like it's a workspace for an artist. Um, so it's really, it's a really great organization that I think more people should know about. Uh, so they gave us this empty storefront. We've got a bunch of folding chairs and borrowed them from friends and music stands and some folding tables and threw it into this giant open room and did this reading of Viet Gone. And all the proceeds went to uh, NUR, the National Network for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. Mm -hmm. And we thought we would have maybe like 30 people show up. And we ended up with, I think, 70 or 80 people. And it was standing room only at that point. <laughs> and it was just this like exciting night that was very special. I like, I never thought we would first off have the kind of people we had in the audience. It was such a good mix of people across different age ranges, different um, backgrounds and races and um, genders. And it was, it was kind of the kind of audience that I think theater institutions say they want in their audience. Wish they had. <laughs> <laughs> Wish they had. It's like, it's the next generation of audiences yeah. and we were so thrilled to have them and it was such a fun night and like we're all, also our first event happened to be on my birthday because I was the only day that <laughs> would work for everyone <laughs> so they we had like a hangout after the reading in the space with like drinks and food and a lot of people stayed and like kind of had this moment of community um and the question that everyone had was, what are you going to do next? So we were like, oh, I, we guess we have to keep doing this. It just <laughs> feels like there's a there's a demand and there's a community that is wanting it. So I we think it's best that we maybe try to do some more things together. Um, so it kind of just kind of snowballed. Um, it snowballed after that. Uh, into a few more readings. Unfortunately, we went into the pandemic the next year. Mm -hmm. So we quickly shifted into a digital model. And I will say that it uh, 
it really actually benefited us as an organization mm -hmm. in a lot of ways because we were able to reach on a national level and even global uh, Vietnamese communities all over the world and partner with organizations all over the world to create these works and support artists where we could in a time where they really needed the support. So it was really, really, really beneficial for us. And I think led to a lot of our growth in a short time. And now we're in our third year and we're starting to like come out of the cave and move out of digital finally with a few projects that are more in person. We have our second cohort for our Viet Writers Lab that uh, is a hybrid model. So we're meeting digitally up until the rehearsal process, and then we'll do it in person and do presentations in New York City in person. So it's very exciting. Uh, it's, it's a good outlet for me. I think <laughs> theater is hard, especially post-pandemic, mm -hmm. or not even post-pandemic, post-shutdowns. Yeah. And I think I find the most joy in doing stuff for the song collective, even though it really doesn't make me money. Uh, and that's not the goal. And it it's a lot, a lot of extra work and time on my part, but it it just makes me so happy to do that. I'm I'm able to continue doing it when I can. And we're trying to balance it as best as we can with our careers and work lives and personal lives so that it doesn't drain us and hopefully just replenishes us. Mm -hmm. I love your um description of like this first event because I feel like the way you described it felt so ephemeral to me. Like I can pinpoint that show, the verse show that I did that felt like, um, um, you know, it was folding chairs, it was tables, but the <laughs> people that were in the space and the community um, made it bigger, I think, than any probably show I've ever done. It was like that one moment of seeing people you recognize, but people you don't, and like intergenerational, and like this is so beautiful. So I, I, I totally felt <laughs> your description of that first reading. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, that's right. Also, that reminds me. I was like, there's so many people I didn't know there. I was like, mm -hmm. how did you? How did you How'd find, you find out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. And yeah. how excited folks are for um this these kinds of creative outlets. I think what you stated is very real of of so many um organizations and institutions try to curate this kind of audience um when really they're missing the values and they're missing that, I don't know, good juju that sometimes um, <laughs> you don't have to work so hard, I guess, to create. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the thing that really drove me up a wall when I did, I used to do marketing and PR communications for theaters. And I worked at a regional theater in California after college. And I was just so baffled in meetings because the way that they approach communities outside of their, their audience bases, which are predominantly older and white, mm -hmm. um, it's just so transactional and it's so disingenuous. And it's like only if it's a play that matches with that community's 
makeup yeah and never other plays but then also like maybe you could get them to see your other plays if you just programmed shows that actually appeal to them and not just another living room drama about white mm-hmm. people by the water sad that they have <laughs> money like let's let's think a little bigger of the root of the problem rather than what we can just uh see surface level like I just don't understand why they're so <laughs> unable to see that yeah yeah and it's also again like what you said what do you how do you program well you know for organizations because I have thoughts mm. about that but thinking about <laughs> programming a season for an entire community not just culturally specific mm. plays for culturally specific communities and then wonder why uh, you're not building a relationship right like mm-hmm. Curious. <laughs> Why didn't that work out for you? <laughs> you know. <laughs> but um, I so we started a little bit with um, you know, uh, the journey right of you from school stage management, and I know there was a little time when you were like, I don't want to be part of this field, and forgive me if I'm quoting you wrong. Um, but talk to talk to us a little bit about that journey if you're okay with that, and then um, what brought you back. Yeah, I, I I had just graduated in 2013, and we'll be that for you, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> Can't tell them my age. Yeah, um, we'll we'll bleep the theater company too. <laughs> um, I just I just graduated and. It was, you know, I don't think a lot of people ever tell you that the first year after you graduate is one of the hardest years of your life because like fundamentally everything about the way your life is structured is completely gone. And so you have to like rebuild how to function in society. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I I was trying to find work and it was hard and uh, I lucked out and got a part-time job at that regional theater in California. So I was doing that. And then I was freelancing as a stage manager when I wasn't at the, the regional theater. And I did two shows back to back and they were such awful experiences, like truly not paid enough, undervalued uh, and overworked, no support. It was just so hard doing both back to back that I was burned out immediately and was wondering whether or not if I should stop stage managing first. And then second, maybe I should just focus on administrative work in theater. But then third, also, I could just do PR communications, not for theater and make twice as much with less hours and more support. So maybe I should do that. So I was in this like limbo world of trying to decide what to do. And I think I didn't stage manage for maybe five or six months. And then my friend, Nicholas Pillipel, who's part of Artists at Play in Los Angeles, uh, he was my desk neighbor at the regional theater and we became really good friends. And uh, I think, yeah, he he was like, hey, we need a sub to come in for our ASM for the extension for our show. Would you be able to come in and do it? And I was like, yeah, sure. That's 
low stakes and really easy. I can do that. So I came in, uh, subbed in for like a week and had a really good time. And then a few months later, he's like, oh, we had this event for our fundraiser. Uh, would you be willing to stage manage it? It's really, it's really straightforward, really easy. And I was like, sure. I trust you as a group. You're not going to harm me. So I did it, had a lot of fun. And then they just kind of kept asking like, oh, do you want to do this? And they're like, oh, do you want to stage manage uh, In Love of Warcraft with us? It's our next production. And I said, sure. I, I feel like that'll be a good experience. I feel I'm like- glad it... you said sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's how I met you, Alejandra. Um, and I, I went through that process. I mean, it was challenging. It wasn't without challenges, of course. Uh, <laughs> we really, yeah. I won't, I won't talk that. about that. That's a different <laughs> podcast. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that's the NC-17 podcast. That's the after hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm about to button my shirt up. I'm getting it all. <laughs> I feel like every time I do a show, I, like, think to myself, is it always like this? Or is it just the show? Yeah. And then I've finally come up to a point in my career where I'm like, no, it's always just like, this is just theater. Theater but is It's just like chaotic. the alchemy of the chaos, right? It's like what yeah. chaotic personalities are here and then that alchemy and it just becomes something. I don't know. <laughs> it's so wild every single time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it still had challenges, of course, but like I had such a good time working with you and working with the cast and doing that show and feeling supported for once by an organization um, and that's why I've, I mean, I've always been an advocate for artists at play because if it weren't for them, I really, I don't think I would be where I am now. I would not be working in theater as a stage manager. So maybe I should blame them for that. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like they showed me what support could be, what community could be, and also uh, got me into uh, the Asian American theater community, because up until that point, I had, I had no connections to it. So in a lot of ways, it gave me so much that I needed at that time. And then I, it, and then again, it was like kind of a snowball, like you never really plan for these things. It just mm-hmm. kind of keeps happening to you. Um, because then they had partnered with uh, LATC uh, and the Latino theater company. So then they they knew me, so they're like, oh, do you want to stage manage this one-person show that's happening right after In Love of Warcraft? And I said yes to it. And then I kept I kept doing things, and eventually I got to a point where I was like, L.A. is not where I see my career growing the way mm-hmm. I want it to grow. I don't think I can make the money I need to make if I want to keep doing this. So I had met with a few professional stage managers who were on tour and the same thing they kept saying was like, well, if you don't like Los Angeles, you should move and you should consider, (laughs) (laughs) you should move. (laughs) I love that period. (laughs) Thanks for the coffee. Bye. Problem solving 101. (laughs) (laughs) You don't like it. Leave. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it's so true. I will say though, that's a very empowering (laughs) statement. I know we're laughing, but people forget, like, if you don't like it, you can leave, like not in a negative way, but power yourself up and, Go yeah, find what is, you want. This is not your life. You can yeah, <laughs> you can exactly. change it. It's beautiful that you discovered that now. 
<laughs> and then they were like, well, you should really consider New York. And like for years in college, even I was like, I don't want to go to New York. Like I've never been there. That feels so cliche. Um, but then I, I did a trip to Chicago, which is a city that I always loved and wanted to, to live in. I did a trip there and then I did a trip directly from Chicago to New York just to see what I would like. And I fell in love with New York and the next year decided to move here and had no job, uh, just had a bunch of money saved up. I sold my car, I sold a bunch of my belongings and tried to make do with what I could. And luckily through Artists at Play Again, I worked with a lot of artists who also had New York connections or who had lived here previously. So they were very generous and offered up um, connecting me to their contacts. And I mean, I spent <laughs> like a month on my couch in my first New York apartment, just emailing people, asking to, to get coffee or get advice um, and just meet people because that's like half the battle in this industry is just knowing enough people to get you work. And somehow, I mean, I pulled through <laughs> and was able to like really build something of a career here and worked like again like I was doing 99 seat theater in LA and then I was doing downtown theater here on showcase contracts which pay nothing moving up into like being a production assistant off Broadway uh and then after the shutdowns somehow suddenly was getting yeah, PSM you were working. Offers. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, and they're offering me PSM. I was like, what? I was just hoping to ASM, but sure, if you want to give me a PSM, I'll take it. Um, and then, you know, lucking out again. Not, I mean, I shouldn't even say lucking out. It's it's because of all the work I put into this yeah. career and, and meeting the right people and fostering positive relationships and showing that I'm a dependable person uh was able to start moving into like now the commercial theater sphere and working on tours and very soon gonna be on Broadway which is like a huge milestone for me and oh, well. I still kind of can't believe it <laughs> um so it's it's been it's been a journey it's been what six years so mm -hmm. uh it's been really good to me though like I really found that I really do love being in New York. I like the community that I've created here and found. And I really think, at least for now, that I don't see myself anywhere else until I do. First of all, you said it's been six years, but three of those under incredible turmoil. Yeah. So I just want to name the the work that you have been doing over the six years to get to where you are. I just want to make mm -hmm. sure that that's clear to the listeners that that is an extreme amount of work. So congratulations. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. And I was also going to say like some of the stuff that I think um, becomes very difficult uh, sometimes, is, especially as you name like that, that moment after graduating where you don't know where to go. Um, and you don't know what your community is, um, how important mm. it seems to your journey that you've named is finding the community, right? Whether it was artists at play or, and, and finding a group that accepted you, 
and understood and spoke your cultural language, right? And was able to mm -hmm. understand like, yes, these managers and just artists in general need money to survive. What a concept, right? <laughs> or um, when you come into a rehearsal room, we greet you and support you and say hi. <laughs> you, you would be surprised how many places you can go into and nobody acknowledges you even arrived. But like these very little things that kind of really um, help propel a person in a career, especially when it's difficult. I feel like to me, that's one of the biggest obstacles I've had is finding um, finding that support people and then being able to stick with them, right? Because as you move throughout your journey, maybe to a different city or something that that requires you to somewhat build a new community. It's like making friends all over at school and you're like, ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> do this again. Not again. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, yeah. You alluded to you're about to make your Broadway debut. So what what are you working on? Yeah, <laughs> I <laughs> um I'm doing just a little play uh, called <laughs> Life of Pi, which is based on the book. People probably know it uh, from the movie. Gosh, when was that? Like early 2010s? It was a while back now. I feel like it, yeah. Yeah, it has to be yeah. like 10 years. Yeah, Sorry, is that folks, wild? if I don't have my facts correct, but. Angly, <laughs> um, angly yeah. life of pie. There you go. <laughs> the tiger, the tiger in the boat. Tiger, and it's really sad. <laughs> it's really sad. It's shockingly sad. Um, yeah, it's this play called Life of Pie. It was done on the West End. Uh, I oh, I hope I I say this. Jonathan, right. why aren't you it, coming with the facts? <laughs> <laughs> I think it started in 2020 or 2021. I know they opened post uh, shutdowns, um, and then it was this like big hit and won a bunch of Olivier's and won best play. Um, the the puppeteers won best actor or supporting actor, one of those, because of their role as. Richard Parker, the tiger, and the work oh, they put beautiful. into it. Like a whole group, they made an exception and like let them win that. It was amazing. Um, and uh, it's it's having its American debut. Uh, we just did a run out of town at American Repertory Theater in Boston. And we're gonna, we have a little break right now and we're gonna start rehearsals very soon. And in March, start previews and open Life of Pi on Broadway, which is this super exciting thing. I think it's so exciting because uh, it's this big spectacle of a show. Like for me, I love all the like very theatrical moments where the audience literally gasps. Me like too. there's one moment <laughs> in this show, without a doubt, they're always gonna go. <gasps> and like people like, and I can see the audience, at least in, Boston I could see some of the front row from where I was for that moment and like sometimes people would like get up out of their seats and like try to see how we do the things that we do um and the puppets are super magical and also like it's this predominantly South Asian company that gets to tell this story that in a lot of ways can have so many entry points for for people like for me I was look at the boat that's on our set. And I think about like my mom and my family who came as refugees and I'm like, they survived on a boat, probably no bigger than the one on our set. 
And like, that blows my mind and like had not even, I mean, his journey in Life of Pi is super long. It's like from the Philippines to uh, Mexico, which is most of the ocean. Um, (laughs) (laughs) My mom just had like a quarter of that. And that's already like amazing enough. (laughs) Don't be knocking your mom down, okay? (laughs) Damn, Jonathan. (laughs) She only had a quarter of that, so I don't know what she's talking about. What are you talking Uh, about, mom? (laughs) You didn't go. No place written about you, mom. On the way to Mexico, mom? You didn't have a tiger. Um, But like... (laughs) I'm just so blown away by that like story of survival and just like the hardship and also like the trauma that that he goes through and that I think at least in the play version because I watched uh, <laughs> I'm gonna expose myself I watched the movie but I fell asleep halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think the play is much better. Um, <laughs> And I think part the we they, bleep. <laughs> I think the way they framed it uh, is more effective, and I think also more effectively exposes the the traumas that uh, the character had gone through and the effects of of that trauma and how it sits in him and 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 has uh, changed him in so many ways. So uh, I'm really excited about that, also because I think this season alone. Short live uh, K-pop was on Broadway. Um, very I sad it, it didn't last. Devastated. But that's an East Asian uh, show that was on Broadway. We have Life of Pi. And I believe it was announced. So, uh, um, you heard oh it here for first, folks. <laughs> oh my God. Here lies love. Here lies love. Yes, Here lies yes. love is coming to Broadway. So that's yeah. a Southeast Asian story. So in this season alone, we're going to have an East Asian story, we'll have a South Asian story and a Southeast Asian story. And I think that's so remarkable and special and like historic. And I I feel like there's a similar experience here with you, Jonathan, for myself, but um, how advocacy just became part of the job. Um, Like wherever I was, um, it was advocating for people that weren't in the room, people that look like me and um, for you particularly, there is uh, even a, is it a New York Times article where you all are mentioned, you and Nicholas? Um, <laughs> uh, it was, uh, what's it called? Was it, a, oh God, Wall Street Journal. Wall Street, Street Journal. So I want to, I, I want to hit that because that's a big thing. Um, and I want to like go back a little bit to this imposter syndrome because um, that is something that I think is very prevalent in myself. Um, and you mentioned it. Um, and I find in other artists, um, that are marginalized and have to work their way into the industry. As I mentioned, my friend Nicholas worked with me at that regional theater in California. That we should um, not name. A, we should not. I mean, I could name it, but like, he still works there. So I, I will do it out of uh, respect to him. Um, but it's in Orange County. So that says enough. And and he works there. So if you want to go on the interwebs so, so and find it, it out, go ahead. <laughs> do the work, people. Do yeah, do the, the work. work. Uh, Take the yeah. shot because we said the name. <laughs> hint, hint. Um, so yeah, so we work there together. I'm I'm mixed race. I'm Vietnamese and white, and Nicholas is Filipino, and. Just to just to clear that, like clear up any confusion. He is taller than me. I am a lighter complexion than him. 
He As a wears, third party, well, they do not look alike. As a third party who's not alike. involved in it, these two human beings do not look nothing alike. And I know <laughs> both of them. <laughs> and like, it got to the point, so we got confused a lot at work is what happened. And so it got to the point where like, I would wear contacts to work because he wears glasses. So at least there was one more thing different and it still didn't help. But it was to the point where like, people would send us, emails or meeting invites that had nothing to do with us that it was for the other person um people would like say hi nicholas or hi jonathan or like stop us in the hallways and talk to us about something that the other person is doing for their job um so it was a lot of it was a lot of um it was a lot of aggression at that institution. Yeah, that macro receiving. macro aggression. I won't even call it microaggressions. Like yeah. at a macro level. Because <laughs> even when we would point it out, uh, they would always have an excuse of like, oh, I, if it was an older person, they're like, oh, I couldn't see you very well. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> uh, I can tell all of you apart, so I don't understand why you can't tell us apart. And there's only two of us. I can tell 20 of you apart. Um, so... <laughs> Um, it got, it got to the, it, it was pretty bad. So I started keeping like a tally mark of every time it happened to me at least. And then sometimes Nicholas would tell me when it would happen to him and I would add that to the tally marks. Oh God, it's been so long now. I feel like it happened at least over 50 times in like a two and a half year span. And then we also got so frustrated that I suggested we make this sign that said this workplace has worked this many days without an incident. And it, the incident was confusing us. <laughs> so we did that for about, I think, a month or a month and a half. And I think the highest amount of days they went without doing it was like 11 days. And the only reason we only did it for a month and a half was because it got to a point where finally we like turned to our boss and we're like, hey, this is a problem were actually bothered by this and their response was oh you joke about it so we didn't think it bothered you and we're like that's just how we cope and then they were like well if you wanted to take it more seriously maybe you shouldn't have a sign up that says that and I was like cool okay fine we'll take it down it's my fault and <laughs> it's my fault and then went on to say unless it's a repeat offender they can't do anything. And I was like, the problem is everyone is doing it and taking a turn. So then I guess it's never going to be solved. Cool. Um, so then I eventually, I left that, went to New York. Um, and then we got contacted because I think Nicholas tweeted about it. Um, uh, and this Washington Post reporter <laughs> saw the tweet and she was doing this article about um people of color getting confused in the workplace. Um, so I thought we were just going to be like one of the stories, like a paragraph at best. Uh, and then for some reason, I don't know why, they decided to make us like the main part. So like I had to go to a <laughs> photographer in Brooklyn and like he took photos of me for the Washington Post. Nicholas had photos done in, in California. And then they did this whole article featuring us. Um, and it just, it was kind of, wild I mean I, I hope it was helpful but like I mean it's it happens so much to a lot of people and no one knows 
properly how to respond to it. But I will actually, I will say it happened to me again recently mm. on my last show a year ago, one of my last shows. And the other, the other person was a COVID safety manager and he was mixed race like me. And even both of us, we met the first day and we we're like, shit, we kind of look alike. Like this is a problem, but he was taller than me. Again, he's taller. We do Apparently that doesn't matter, Jonathan. <laughs> it doesn't. Height doesn't matter. You can keep saying uh, taller. It don't matter. <laughs> and we were like, ha ha ha. Like we made jokes about it to ourselves, no, to no one else. And then it started happening. People were confusing us. Um, like literally at the invited dress, one of the designers was like, what are you doing out here to him? And he's like, I'm doing my job. I, I don't know what you mean. And she's like, isn't there a run? There's a run right now. Shouldn't you be calling the show? And he's like, oh, that's not me. Uh, so we did the sign again that I did. And <laughs> I will say our director who, um, I love her a lot. Her name is Story. She's, uh, She's black and experienced that a lot in her career. And instead of laughing, like most of us, she was like, this really bothers me. And this really makes me sad. Mm -hmm. And so she emailed artistic leadership at the theater and was like, this needs to be solved. We can't, we cannot keep doing this. Like, this isn't okay. Um, and she did that on her own. I didn't ask her to, like, I was very, it was very, very sweet of her to do that. And the theater responded in a very good way. They're like, do you feel comfortable with us naming it and naming you? And we're like, yes. And they sent out an email about how to be better. And we need to respect each other and remember each other's names and who we are and our jobs. And they sent out our face sheets to remind people who's who. <laughs> um, and then we never really had a problem again with that. So there's hope, I guess, is what I'm saying about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There is, there's hope. And I think um, something you said about naming it, because, um, you know, I, I, I can name like uh, three times this has happened to me in the last two months. Um, so it's constant and it's, it's curious how, um, yeah, like you said, uh, we laugh about it because it's our right to laugh about it because that's how we cope because it is, uh, it's traumatic to not have someone recognize who you are, especially if, you see them on a somewhat daily basis or not um and yet right. we we as um uh we don't talk about it sometimes or even like acknowledge that it is a painful moment or yeah. it could mess up your day or your week or your month um to right. not be seen <laughs> it's yeah. so important to be seen right 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 exactly and I, and going off of that a friend of mine uh who i visited while this was happening at that regional theater, I told the story and she, she just looked at me and she's like, do you know what that means? Is that when they talk to you, these people are not actually seeing you. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my, like it blew my mind. Um, and I was like, that's so true. They really are not seeing me for who I am. They're just trying to get whatever they need or they're not uh, valuing me in this organization in a way that they can recognize me for who I am as an individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In me, it always triggers um, a feeling of temporariness. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm temporary. Um, mm -hmm. And then I kind of got to talk myself out of that, like to, to not sit in that, but it, it reminds it. Yeah. It triggers like, Oh, I'm, I'm temporary to this person. 
Mm, um, there yeah. is nothing, there's nothing being built here. Okay, cool. Um, whether that's true or not, that's what it triggers. So it's, yeah, I, it, people, I think, forget all the things maybe sometimes other people are walking around with when for them, mm. it's just a mistake and they kind of move mm. on from it. And then it just sits with you and you're just like, okay, cool. I will say too, that's a little bit, and it's just a funny bridge, but like this bridge to this imposter syndrome that I know you talked about in the beginning, but it's one of those mm. things for me that sometimes makes me question why am I even supposed to be here? Did I do enough to be here? Mm. Um, what more do I have to do to be seen? Um, so mm. that those are like those little things that trigger that, um, at least for me. Um, in this journey of a uh, very predominantly white field where mm. people that look like me, talk like me, have stories like me are still marginalized. Yeah. I mean, there's so much of like how I operate as a stage manager is informed by that because, I mean, for a long time, not so much now, <laughs> I'm old. I'm not old. I'm, I'm on Broadway now. Matur- <laughs> I'm maturing. But like for a long time, I was like the youngest person in the room. Um, so in a lot of ways, I felt like sometimes I would be dismissed or not heard. And I I, I struggle with it still now of like, are people actually hearing me when I speak? When I give direction, when I give information that you need, mm-hmm. are you actually taking the time to listen to me or are you disregarding me and then in my head I'm equating it to you know my age my race my disposition that I'm not you know I don't have like a huge booming voice but you know I I'm a very easygoing kind of relaxed personality and I do a lot I, I use a lot of humor <laughs> to to do my job and survive uh, so like, sometimes I feel like that makes me second guess if people take me seriously in my position, because I am in a, I'm in a management position. I'm in a leadership role. Um, a lot of things can make or break because of what I say. Mm-hmm. So I, I really still worry about that. And like, I will notice things because of that, like, oh, this person consistently will stand in front of me when I am in a circle (laughs) with them and cut me out of the circle. That's interesting. Or, oh, they consistently cut me off before I finish my thought. Um, Or they repeat what I just said that was not embraced by the group, but they just said the same thing and now it's a good idea. Like those things like drive me up a wall and then make me wonder like, what am I doing? Like, am I, am I valued? What, why am I here? Yeah. How do you, do you, do you have coping mechanisms to get yourself out of that? Uh, Like me, sometimes I just go into another room and yell. (laughs) (laughs) That is a good. Because everything you described is, is I like, I go through this a lot um, of like, I find myself, I like have to mm. say something, meet with the person one-on-one, email it out. And it's all the same thing. Um, and then it still won't get done. And I'm just like, okay. Yeah. And then another person can just text somebody and, you know, everything lines up and works perfectly. So <laughs> I feel like that, 
That's, I mean, maybe I, I do need to figure this out a little bit more, but I think what's been really helpful for me is at least knowing that I have like a buddy, I guess, in the space or mm -hmm. in the company so that I can like, after it happens, I can look at them and be like, that was wild. That happened, right? Like that was weird. And they're like, yes, that was very weird. Um, and then I think also I've gotten to a more confident point where I'm not so weary of conflicts. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, I mean like addressing things. Like yeah. I'm not trying to pick a fight, but I'm also like, oh, there's something going on here. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Where like even on my last show, I was having issues with the crew member and there's a lot of weird tension that I was like, what? I don't know what I did. Yeah. And it got to a point where they gave me an attitude and I had to look at them in the conversation and just say, are you good? What is wrong? Please tell me because there's a lot of tension and I cannot continue to work like this because it's just going to get worse. So how do we fix it? What can I do? Mm -hmm. And they're like, suddenly like the tension was cut. They like appreciated it and they were able to vocalize what their problem was. So I think in those situations, it's, it's been helpful for me to just kind of address it, mm -hmm. um, which is scary and it's hard and it doesn't work all the time and it doesn't, and it, I can't do it in every situation because of power dynamics, but doing that, having a buddy, trying to find the humor in it. I think humor is my main survival skill because <laughs> uh, <laughs> you kind of have to laugh and like really trying to remove myself and my ego from a lot of situations and just also remembering like I guess it's a job and like I have to I can't I can't take it too personally which is it's like it's hard it's all yeah. like I say all these things but it's like very easy to say but hard to do yeah yeah I think um one thing to me is uh the witness mm -hmm. um like you name it the buddy but like there's something about um, having someone else witness it and being able to be like, did you see that? <laughs> that again, <laughs> makes me um, not feel like I'm um, making stuff up because I think the system mm -hmm. has created this um, culture that I'm the one making it up or I'm the one reading into something too much or I'm the one bringing stresses from another place into this workplace. So the witness has been super important to me of like, did you see that? <laughs> did you hear that? <laughs> it's not, I, okay, cool, cool, cool. And then it kind of just like lets me breathe a little bit. But I think what you're naming too of like, this, it's a lot. It's a lot to do on a daily basis. And for a lot of us, mm -hmm. this is a daily basis um, interaction with other um, people in our workplace and, you know, even anywhere. It's like right. every day I got to figure out, am I just making this up or did this really happen? <laughs> yeah. And then like choosing when, like choosing your battles. Yeah. Choosing when you're not conflict averse and you're like, what's up, man? <laughs> <laughs> right. Because you also don't want to be labeled as someone who's like. Difficult, angry, aggressive. aggressive. Or difficult, angry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. It's such a balance. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say, I think this is one of those things where I, um, it, it also, um, 
then makes you whether you want to be or not. Um, at least for me, like I then have to become an advocate in a space um, oh. or I have to like speak up for things I'm seeing and it kind of lands on my shoulders and then I have another hat to carry um, mm -hmm. as opposed to just having my work hat. I have to do all these other things, which um, are just huge weights. Sometimes you're like, I just want to go to work today. <laughs> right <laughs> yeah it just happens so naturally whether you want it to or not I guess going back to because you kind of you did ask that question of like advocacy and everything for me I think uh I think it did happen a lot naturally but also because I would sit in rooms and I'm like boiling mad and I just wanted to like I felt I had to say something because it's like do I want to be known as someone who was involved and complicit in this mm -hmm. and didn't say anything? Or do I want to at least know that I had said something to try and uh, help the situation or prevent it from harming people? Um, and I think, I mean, the big turning stone, turning stone? Turn sure, turn the stone. <laughs> Turn the stone. Go ahead. Turning point. Turning point. Um, Turn the point. Uh, was when I, I I trained in the facilitator program with Art Equity, um, and in 2018, and that really gave me the tools and the vocabulary I was so desperate to have. Because also, it's like you're put into this advocacy role or desire to advocate, but you don't have the, you're, you're never taught any of that. So you don't have mm -hmm. any tools to do it or you're just kind of like winging it. Um, so that really helped me to feel confident and empowered and have the resources and tools to be able to more properly advocate in a way that was helpful for me. Um, and out of that, I ended up doing a, uh, affinity groups for BIPOC stage managers because I had been working in New York for two, three years at that point and was like, I don't know many other BIPOC stage managers. I've never even worked with many others. Mm -hmm. So how do I find them? And I wonder if other people are having the same issue. So I started the affinity groups after Art Equity in New York. I would just find a space and put out posts on social media you know, sometimes the turnout was good, sometimes it wasn't, um, but it was really helpful to just have a space where we could become a community, we could connect, we could talk about the industry a little more frankly, um, and build a network amongst us, and it eventually led to, like, more, like, casual bar meetups every few months, um, and then in the shutdowns, I did digital ones over Zoom, which included people outside of New York, which was really exciting. Mm -hmm. And then since then, I have not done it in person as much just because I'm kind of weary of COVID. Because imagine if I did one and I took out a bunch of stage managers in the city <laughs> by giving them COVID. Well, that would be revenge. <laughs> uh, but I think I... Think, uh, you want to know how important we are? All right, everyone has COVID. Uh, now we're gone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're getting to a point where I think it, we can start doing that again. But I mean, it's been so um, helpful. And I think um, I know a lot of teams 
that I've met through that um, that now work together regularly, mm. uh, which is really exciting. And um, I met some really great, like for a long time, I didn't have many friends in stage management. And then, because <laughs> we're kind of insufferable at times. <laughs> uh, but I don't I think that's again. true, but. <laughs> I don't know. Get a room of us together. <laughs> um, It'll be very clean, but... I guess. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be cleaner than when you uh-huh. first got into the room. Um but I met a lot of good friends through that and a lot of people I, I consistently want to work with or, or have worked with. Uh, so in some ways, like it is difficult to take on that advocacy role. And I, and again, it's kind of like, don't live there if you don't want to, like, if you feel like for you, you cannot take that on, mm-hmm. on top of everything else you're trying to do to survive and, and like grow in this industry, you don't have to. Um, but I think for me, it it was, it was extremely helpful and empowering to do that advocacy work. Mm -hmm. So I know you talked about how the song collective came together, but, um, I feel like you've had some pretty important numbers, right. Of like, even through your playwrights project, um, which I, that may not be the name of it. So please correct me, but, um, you have new plays, you, you know, given a platform to new playwrights. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I'm super proud of even knowing mm-hmm. you and also just being able to witness your journey. And like, I remember when I saw that you you were part of this uh, cohort that created the Song Collective, I was like, oh, damn, Jonathan is doing the thing. He's doing the work. Um, so drop me some numbers, Jonathan. <laughs> Yeah, you know, also, I guess, in the story of the Song Collective, I never said our mission is in the short term, not short term, short way of saying it, we aim to amplify the voices of those from the Vietnamese diaspora and provide creative space for artists of color. That is the short line of our mission. Um, but yeah, I mean, in three years, we've we've done a lot. We've been able to do over 10 readings and workshops Uh of works mostly by Vietnamese and Asian American identifying artists. We supported over 80 artists through those projects and others. And we've partnered with over 10 organizations, including second generation productions, 5090s, 59 theaters, and Ujima Collective. Um, and we we have had our Viet Writers Lab in 2021. Um, that was during the shutdowns. And it's this holistic program that we crafted uh, because we were finding that it was very hard. We will admit it was hard to find Vietnamese playwrights and find their works in a place where it was ready to develop and produce in a way that we could properly support that. Um, So we devised this writer's lab to one, start with this sort of um, kind of icebreaker process that I learned through Art Equity and Junebug Productions when we were in New Orleans. And um, it all stems from uh, the free Southern theater that Junebug uh, is like the successor of. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a process that like Cornerstone does that brings people together in a story circle. And it's pretty much a facilitated conversation where you ask questions and prompts to bring out 
personal stories, bring out memories from the participants. And through that, we're hoping that first they get to a point where they're comfortable sharing each other's work amongst themselves mm -hmm. um, and also inspire each other and also examine what it means to be uh, a Vietnamese writer in this industry um, and examine their identities. Because for a lot of our writers in this group, in both groups that we've had, they've never had a space with other Vietnamese playwrights to just talk. Um, so that's the start of the process. Then we also have panels with professionals in the field, usually other playwrights who have had productions produced. Uh, we've, we're having like a dramaturgy panel with our current cohort, and then also one with like literary departments and institutions that focus on new play work so they can understand that portion of the playwright's journey in this industry. <laughs> um, and then we move into a group model where, you know, they have pages due, they share them, we read them, we give feedback, we ask questions. Then we go into rehearsals and put up a reading of that work um, for anyone who's willing to come and for people in the industry to try and get them, you know, some sort of exposure out of mm -hmm. this. I mean, our main goal always is to support the artists and where they're at. And it's not so much about the final product, but about the process for them and their growth. And that's the most important thing to us. So like even with our digital readings for the last Writers Lab in 2021, if you went to multiple readings for each playwright, you would notice that like each one was slightly different. Like some did their whole play. Some did <laughs> excerpts from the play and then had a discussion about their process. Um, so it was tailored to whatever felt right for them, which is a big kind of philosophy for us as as leaders of the song collective is how do we how do we actually support them where they're at and what they need and not worry so much about, you know, is it presentation perfect? Because mm -hmm. we're not that's not that's not interesting, frankly, yeah. to us. <laughs> and it's not beneficial to to the artists. So that's where we're at with that. Uh, we had six writers in our first one. It was national. Uh, well, it was international. We had one Canadian writer. And then Damn. our current, <laughs> I know. The song collective um, is international. <laughs> international. Um, and then uh, our current cohort is, are just three playwrights. We've decided to, to scale back because we have to be realistic about what we can do mm -hmm. financially and time-wise. Um, it allows us more time with each playwright as well and to focus on them more. And we've moved into this model that's a little more regional just to try and you know figure out how we can properly support them if we're doing in-person presentations. So Right now, it's sort of like the northeastern region. <laughs> um, so it's still New York, but we also have like a writer who's in Massachusetts. So we're doing the hybrid version where we meet digitally, then do in-person uh, presentations. And then the next few cohorts will rotate to like the South, the Midwest, the Western coast. Um, so that way we can also support them in the communities that they most likely will be working in mm -hmm. and connect with Vietnamese and Asian American communities in those areas and partner with organizations in those areas to, to make the lab happen. Um, so it's a really exciting shift in how we're approaching the Writers Lab. Um, 
And I think ultimately will have a better impact for everyone involved in the process. I love that. I love um, the reversal of the harvesting model <laughs> where it's like, <laughs> we pick you and we are going to take you here and then we're going to write your play so it's ready for Broadway. But like, what does right. it mean to support artists in their community so they can continue to be part, right? And be nutritious in that community. So I love that. Yay! Right. I mean, surprise, there's theater outside of New York. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> what a thought. <laughs> there's theater everywhere and there will be like theater before you and after you, you know, so. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the model that you're creating for the collective is just so fantastic. What, what Alejandro was saying right on the money, like, and just how that's going to reap so much benefits within those communities and create opportunities for folks that you haven't met yet is so amazing. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's wild. Sometimes I think about it. I'm like, this is, what am I doing? This is wild. <laughs> doing the Living work. your life. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything um, you want to drop a line on? You can find us at the songcollectivenyc.org and it's S-O-N-G, nothing special there. Um, and we're also the Song Collective on Instagram. And if you wanna, I don't know, look at my resume, I guess, or just read a little bit more about me. You wanna hire Jonathan? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a website that's just my name, jonathancastanian.com and on Instagram, I'm John Ed, J-O-N-E-D. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure um, having yeah. you on um, the work. <laughs> um, and I am just so proud of your journey and to know you and to be in a circle with you. Um, and I can't wait till we cross paths again because it's always a good time. <laughs> no, I, I feel the same way about you. I'm just so, always so inspired by, by you. And I just love having conversation with you because it's so it's so replenishing <laughs> well thank you i appreciate that i will receive that in gratitude <laughs> thank you to our guest jonathan castanian links to his fantastic work can be found in the episode description since our conversation life of pi has premiered on broadway at the gerald schoenfeld theater to rave reviews congratulations to jonathan and the whole team our next guest is amelia acosta powell currently the impact producer and co-director of artistic programming at Actors Theatre of Louisville. Subscribe to our podcast to follow our conversations with the field. Until next time, keep doing the, the work. work.